0: plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hi and welcome back to Talking Companies. I'm Phil Muscatello. And I'm Mark Tobin. And today we're focusing on Brickworks Limited, ASX code BKW. Brickworks was established in 1934, listed on the Australian Stock Exchange in 1961, and has been led by Lindsay Partridge AM for the past 35 years. And he's overseen incredible success for the company and delivered a dividend every year. Thanks for joining us, Lindsay. It's great to be with you. So give us a quick overview of Brickworks to people who might be new to the story.
2: Well, as you said, uh, in 1934, the company was formed. Actually, there was uh, a bunch of the Sydney brickmakers got together to buy out the state brickworks out of manufacturing bricks, which was at Homebush Bay, which ended up becoming the site of the Olympics. Uh, the government changed and the ownership of it changed a few times and uh, it went on on its own way. But um, not long after that, they folded a number of the companies that had joined together to form brickworks. They folded them in and in amongst that was the Austral Brick Company, which had formed in 1908. And that was really the beginning of the story. I think we were on the New South Wales Exchange, but in 61, we listed on the National Exchange. And in, in 1968, we were worried that London Brick was going to take us over, Brickworks being the largest brickmaker south of the equator. So they thought of a few strategies and it's pretty common in those days to have cross shareholdings. And the company that was the exact same size as us at market cap of about 26 million was Washington H. Salt Patterson. And now they got together and, and they swapped a million shares each And The paper said the next day, um, directors on drugs, shareholders get brickbats. Still got that clipping on my computer today. And they went on then to buy shares in each other. And and that continued about 1990 when ASIC said enough's enough. And at that point, Soles owned about 49% of Brickworks and Brickworks owned 43% of Soles. And it had been effective and it was made illegal at that point of time, but it was grandfathered as far as that relationship. But what it meant was that Building products is a very volatile business and in, in difficult times, you know, we could still pay our dividend out of the dividends we received from souls. And then from about ninety-nine, 2000, when I took over, we started really to grow because at that point in time, we were only five plants in two states. And we took over Bristol Island in 2003, which made it national and made us number one brickmaker, number two rooftop producer. And then we expanded in various areas, masonry for a while, and then precast, we got in. Into timber, hardmill timber, and we got out of that. And then eventually, uh, you know, we realised we couldn't grow any more in Australia, and we headed off uh, to the United States, uh, buying the glengarry Corporation on Thanksgiving 2018, and that's what got us into the US. But along that way, the other thing that sort of really emerged is that from about 2000 on, we always had this enormous land bank, which had been our clay reserves, and it had to become surplus for what we needed, and so we started to fold it out and. Uh, the zoning was right. And we joined up with Goodman in about 2005, 2006. So we started this property trust. And that in itself today has grown enormously. So they're the major parts of the business, building products, Australia, United States, investment in Salt Patterson, and uh, a large industrial property portfolio.
1: Brick seems to be a very basic kind of building product, but um, these days, fashion and trends are really important to product development. Tell us a bit about that.
2: Well, when you think about it, most bricks get used in in housing and most bricks we sell today are face bricks. It wasn't always the way. I mean, really up until, uh, you know, 2000, we used a lot of commons and the structural work when buildings were built properly. So when someone thinks about buying a house, it's usually the female that makes the decision and it's all about the fashion. You know, what does the house look like? You know, is, is it going to keep up with the neighbours and, and, you know, how's it going to look and how's it going to fit in in the longer term? And So it's a really big decision. It's mostly the biggest fashion decision that um, you know, a family will make, and so we got a lot of trouble there to try and make sure a we're up with the fashions, and b we're able to help our clients in determining you know what the look of that house. And we do a lot of colour consultings and things, so we get you know the whole external look of the house looking as best as it can for our customers.
0: And Lindsay, you, you mentioned you know the building products being a, a volatile business, and it's very tied to you know where we are in the property market right now. And uh, you know, I've seen various forecasts for the property market. You know, next year. Immigration reopens, you know, the government by and large still committed to a big Australia policy, both sides of the house still committed to a kind of a big Australia policy. So where do you think we are in the kind of property cycle right now for somebody who has been at the very pointy end of, you know, the cycle, both the highs and the lows over your career? Yeah, sometimes I wish I wasn't at the pointy end, but that's where we find ourselves. But look, demand is very
2: strong at the moment. As you mentioned, the government stimulus have sort of kicked things along. Interest rates are at record low levels. There's quite a bit of pent-up demand. I mean, the amount of demand there is really depends on what the price for housing is. And of course, you know, with low interest rates, that's gone up and that might taper things a bit. The biggest issue going forward, of course, is the fact that we haven't really had any immigration for 18 months or more. And, you know, while our best estimate says it takes about three through to as much as eight years for somebody who migrates to the country to buy their first home or build their first house, that there's a bit of a pipeline there that's still in front of us. But because it won't hold forever, if immigration stays low, or non-existent and internal birth rates remain incredibly low, then um, eventually, you know, we'll have enough housing, we'll catch up. But I guess to a certain degree, a lot of people aren't really concerned at the moment. It's good that we get a bit of a catch up. You know, we've had big immigration for over a decade, ever since the GFC, so I guess a lot of people are quite happy for us to sort of have an opportunity to catch up.
0: If we take a little bit of a deeper look at the US business, I mean, as you say, you're the, the number one in Australia. What was kind of the idea of going to the US as opposed to, you know, going cross the Tasman or, you know, moving into the UK where you know there's a long history also of brick buildings. You only know, have to think of the Coronation Street intro to conjure up what most of Northern England looks like. But why did the US over maybe some, some markets closer to home or kind of more traditional brick markets? Yeah, so well, we did an evaluation. As I said, we
2: couldn't really grow in Australia and we already exported to New Zealand. It's not a very big market and there's no major producers there anymore. And we really evaluated it and we just came to the conclusion that the the proposition to move to America, particularly under President Trump, you know, you couldn't beat it. The tax situation was excellent. It was a big business, over 40 manufacturers. There was lots of opportunities to get an entrance. And as it turned out, Ibstock, which of course is one of the two major UK producers, uh, you know, wanted to sell Glengarry but didn't want to sell to Winneberger, who owns General Shale in the United States, they also compete with Winneberger in the UK so the fact that we came along was you know brilliant we were always going to get Glengarry and then from there we've been able to expand and, you know energy prices you know abundant energy about 30 percent of the cost of what it costs us for gas in Australia excellent tax you know cheap abundant labor it was fairly abundant at that point in time I anyhow mean, yeah, abundant labor educated workforce same language you know similar sort of laws I had worked there before, about thirty or forty years ago, so I was familiar with it. I was familiar with a lot of the manufacturers, and so it was, a, you know, really quite an easy step for us to make to go to the US. Other than the time change, which is, runs about usually about ten or eleven hours, so it's quite difficult from a management point of view to talk to the staff over there. But other than that, it's been very good.
1: Lindsay, you've noticed some uh, cost pressures in the US now. Things have changed with the current administration, and um, how how is Brickworks dealing with that?
2: Well, some of the same themes we've seen emerge here. I mean, the first one is, of course, we have labour shortages in both countries, and um, we were pretty tight over there in some of the areas we're in. Unemployment was less than 2% prior to the uh, pandemic. But, of course, now we've had this incredible rethink, and I think they're calling it the great resignation at the moment. People are reevaluating their lives, and the same trends there, as I said here, you know, people say, well, I don't want to live here anymore, I want to live somewhere else, or... I think I can get myself a better job or I don't like this company, I'll resign. And so this has created an enormous amount of turmoil. And of course, we're on the back end of the baby boomers. When people forget this, that the baby boomers are in full retirement mode now. And of course a lot of them have decided, well, I'll just retire. And so we have a very tight labor market and that's pushed up wages and, you know, we're running at about five to seven percent of our workforce. We're short at all times, which is about fifty to seventy people. And so that's made it difficult. Gas has firmed a bit, but we've got long-term gas contracts out seven years, so not so worried about that. The biggest one that's had a direct impact is trucking. Because of the shortage of labour, there's a shortage of trucks, cost of uh, trucks, you know, shipping from point A to B, in some cases, you know, more than doubled. And in a lot of cases, we can't lift our full dispatch because we just can't fill enough trucks. So that's most probably the greatest single impact is the lack of trucking and followed by lack of
1: staff to run our plants. Is there any scope to pass these higher costs on to consumers?
2: Yes, well, we've had some pretty solid price rises and we'll continue with that because it's a very competitive market. You can't get too far in front of your competitors and I guess a lot of other participants in the market look to us as one of the leaders, particularly in the, in the Midwest and the Northeast and we've found, you know, as we move our prices, they sort of follow along. But yeah, look, it's absolutely necessary. You stay in front of that curve. If you get behind it, it's very hard to catch up and obviously would result in reduced margins.
0: And in terms of uh, the Australian business, if we just come back to that, uh, I know there's been a big CapEx program and a new plant upgrading program that are coming to an end, let's say the end of, of calendar year 22. What's that going to mean in terms of, I guess, costs, margins, efficiencies? And then does that free up capital to be redirected back into, into dividends or to, you know, doing a, a similar kind of program with the US business? Well, when we kicked off on a couple of the construction projects we had here, one was a
2: replacement plant for a site that we had to get off that we never owned, but as it's progressed, there's two other sort of fundamental things that are sort of distorting what we'd like to do, and they are the fact that the industrial property, the land for industrial property is so valuable, it's accelerating the necessity to retire plants that we would have otherwise kept going, is the first thing that's impacting us. And the second thing is, you know, there's an enormous push towards sustainability and reducing your carbon footprint. And this is sort of putting pressure on us to accelerate our program to modernize some of our plants that need modernizing. So I think that high capex is going to continue for a number of years driven by that. And then on top of that, we've also got the objective that there's new products that we want to get into that we don't currently manufacture. And we see good business opportunities in a number of areas. So I think the capex is going to stay up for a while. We haven't exactly retired the plants in the order we'd like for the reasons I just stated. So You know, it's just part of growing the business. We're going through an enormous growth period. And where you'll see the value emerge from that is in the value of the industrial property trust. That's where it comes out. You know, our cash goes in to build a new plant. We get off a site. We demolish the old plant. And, you know, and then we do a pre-lease and build some sheds. And that's where the value emerges. So, you know, effectively our cash flow in the building products is going to create the value of the property trust.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's uh, change gears a bit and talk about the property trust. I mean, it's been an enormous success yeah, over the last 15 years. I mean, in terms of recycling the capital, you know, it's great when you can sell land at these, uh, you know, high prices, because as you say, it's one part of the property market that's, you know, really been on fire and particularly the last two years. But in terms of, you know, finding recycling capital, selling off things, doing new things within the property trust, is it is it getting harder to, you know, make the numbers kind of stack up the way you want to? No, not really. We're a bit overwhelmed. I mean, we were running at about
2: you know for years about thirty to fifty thousand square meters of of lettable area per year. We're now running you know two hundred and fifty thousand meters per annum, and so we're running at an unprecedented level. And the the projects stack up very easy, particularly with the low interest rates. And yeah, for us, effectively, you know, we're getting half of these completed buildings for just putting in the land, and so. The cash actually doesn't go in there, as I was saying before. It goes in across to the building product side. But we've got, at the moment, an end value of north of $1.2 billion will come through, and uh, you know that'll increase in the next two years and increase our gross rent by $50 million just in the next two years. So it's, a, it's got an enormous head of steam up, and you know hopefully in another couple of weeks we're going to announce the completion of the PC of the Amazon building, which is the biggest warehouse in Australia. You know, it's north of 200,000 square metres in total floor area you know, some incredible number of football fields like 50. You know, there's a massive, massive projects that we've had to deliver in conjunction with Goodman and our our construction companies. But, you know, Australia hasn't seen, you know, developments like this previously.
1: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because it seems to be that warehousing for um, these internet-style delivery companies is the big growth driver for industrial property. Is that what you're seeing? Is that the case for you?
2: well there's two things that point you make is correct but the second part is this is that in amongst the the supermarket chains you know there's an enormous amount of competition to get their warehousing and distribution as efficient as possible you know even beyond the click and connect so they're automating them and, and you know this is the story of you know if Coles automates well Woolies has got to automate and if Woolies automates well Audi's got to automate and so they need a different style of building and uh, they're high bay they're 10 stories high they're they can have a ground footprint between 50 and 70,000 square meters. And inside they could have one of a couple of different systems. They have like an automatic racking system where, um, a controlled, um, I don't know what you call them. a Racking retrieve, you know, the retrieve pallets, <laughs> et cetera. A rack fact, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't really know what you call those. It's a bit like the the ones in Amazon. Amazon run a different thing. They have a little like, robot pod with a stillage on it and with, you know, a hundred little pockets in it and the items can be anywhere and it just sort of works it all out. But, But they're all different. They're specialised buildings. But the thing about them for us, which makes them so attractive, is that the value is about double the value of a traditional single-storey cross-docking warehouse, first point. And second thing, to build these, we get very long leases. We usually sign a 20-year lease, and they're sticky because, you know, the amount of equipment they've got inside can be worth more than the building. So once they've invested that, they don't want to walk away from it. So you know you've got a blue chip. Long-term tenants, so they're excellent as far as the investment point of view.
1: And there's also the challenge as well of finding that uh, sweet spot logistically, isn't it, with the uh, road, rail, ports, and so forth.
2: Yeah, and you got to have the land. I mean, when we're doing a few of these, the bigger ones, I mean, they're only competing against one or two other blocks of land in the Sydney Basin because
0: they're just companies don't have that big parcels of land like we have, you know. And Lindsay, you know, given the the footprint that you've got in the in the US. Is there a possibility of kicking a similar thing off in the US, you know, trying to optimize that footprint of various plants in the Midwest, the Northeast, maybe with Goodman or with a US partner who'd, you know, be similar to Goodman? Is that a possibility? Well, initially we thought, you know, maybe not because the value of land is a lot
2: less, but as we're sort of... um you know got to know the areas we're working we sort of think that there's one or two sites that may have potential most of our factories in the u.s are sitting on about five or six hundred acres of land and so they're quite big and some of them feeder roads into major freeways like we got one in the mid-atlantic area that feed a road to the freeway which runs from washington dc to new york and so obviously that's a major freeway and and, you know, so that's maybe there's some potential there and there's a Goodman building about 500 metres down the road. But they don't do the same over there as we do it here. You know, we do pre-leases and so we build specifically. They tend to do more speculative work. But, yeah, so, yeah, we're looking at it. I think there is some potential as we've been consolidating our plants. We've been also been peeling off land and the quarries and that. so that's just gone quite well. We've made a steady stream of profits. And I think that will continue for a while, just that, you know, consolidating our footprint into a more efficient sort of format.
0: And the US business, as you mentioned, you're kind of in the Midwest and Northeast, is that the kind of two markets you want to stay in, or is there a plan to, you know, push into the southeast over to the west coast and you know have a national footprint like you have in Australia? Obviously, when I say a national footprint, I'm talking multiple X's of size, but do you foresee if we look out 10 years that you would have a pretty much national footprint or are, are the two markets you know because they're big population centers the midwest you know anchored by Chicago in the midwest and then you've got New York Boston Washington up in the northeast are you going to stick to those because that's where I guess the vast majority of the U.S. population live well each of these markets
2: are slightly different there's not a lot of bricks used on the west coast it's mainly like stucco and stuff but in the areas that we work they're traditional brick areas and so there's a lot of Brick being used in, in you know, 20 and 30 story apartment buildings, particularly in New York. And the repair and maintenance of those is is a really important part because it's got to be used the same bricks. For example, we're, used, we're repairing the Chrysler building at the moment. We supplied the Chrysler building in the early 30s from our Hanley plant in Pennsylvania and we're supplying the bricks from the same plant to do the maintenance on it and so that's very good work it's a premium price and the architectural work we get in those areas we do a lot of schools the average schools about a million bricks and we'd have 10 or a dozen underway at any one time we do the big chains the food chains you know all those sorts of things we get a lot of that hospitals you know fire stations and it goes and that's all high value high specification work in the southern states, like Texas, heading east across to the Carolinas, bricks are uh, used predominantly in housing, and so it's very much like Australia, but it's big volume, lower prices. You to have big, low-cost plants to compete in that. So it's a little bit different. But to get to the crux of your question, look, as I think opportunities come up and and they're presented to us, there's no doubt we'll expand outside this footprint or intensify. I you mean, know, where we are, you know, we're already pretty dominant in the region that we're in, but there's no doubt we'll intensify that and, and dig in a bit deeper and um, become more entrenched. So I would think that over the next, you know, three to five years, we'll mostly see the steady stream of
1: acquisitions come through. Lindsay, if I can get back to the trends and fashion sides of things in terms of Brickwork, how does a company like Brickworks um, keep up with this? I mean, what's the shape of the department that um, looks after this and the team that looks after this?
2: Yeah, look, I think what I think is very close to architects. We have a great relationship with the architectural community in Australia we're building that relationship in the United States as well. And they, they're sort of usually across the trends and you get a bit of a feel for it. We've got a number of suppliers. We actually import a lot of bricks both into Australia and the United States, out of Italy and Spain. You know, And these companies are right across what the latest fashion trends are over there. So, And obviously we keep pretty close to there's companies that do the future colours, like called colourways, and we stick very close to them. So we're always a few years out where we think things are gonna go. And and of course what happened was that if you go back to late last century, you know, we used to have a lot of mottled bricks and then we've gone through a period monochromatics, you know, monocolors. But now we've been, since the uh, the pandemic, we've gone back into having models and uh, browns are back and very rustic style, warm, rustic, home style type products. Uh, have come back in a big way as well. So, and you've got to be on top of that, and you've got to be able, you know, keep the products coming out that people want. And the fact that you're in the market, you get to know which ones are selling. If one particular style sells well, will you obviously produce more of them. So, <laughs>
1: just follow your nose.
0: <laughs> Lindsay, if we just go back to the the sole Pat's shareholding, you know, it's been a long cross shareholding. It's pretty unique, as you say. It was, you know, grandfather back in the '90s. So we haven't seen the set-up. I guess, evolve over time. But in terms of that cross-shareholding, do you think, you know, Brickworks would be where it is today without it? Oh, look, it's a good question. You could look at that a couple
2: of ways, you know. um, You could have maybe argued that maybe Brickworks would even be bigger without it, you know, through doing equity raisings and things, which of course for a long time we were limited at a lot of companies have done equity raising and they haven't necessarily increased the value for their shareholders. And, you know, the discipline, I'm paid to increase the wealth of my shareholders. And, and the last thing you want to do is you raise equity because that dilutes them. So uh, maybe that was a good discipline. But, of course, what's happened more recently, if you look over the last 20 years, a few shares went out here and there and that 49% they owned of us has dropped to 43 And more recently, and we sold some shares to prove to people that we real, that wasn't ghost equity, as some people spoke about. They had a high price at the time. We sold some, but soon just had paid for the Glengarry acquisition effectively, and that brought us down to 39% of them. And then, of course, in the last few months, Soles has taken over Milton and did it as a script basis, and that was a $3 billion takeover. So we were actually diluted down to 26.1%. And so we're very much normal companies now. What that's done is that effectively, the restrictions that were placed on us because of the cross-sharing have now been removed. And, you know, if we wanted to buy back stock or issue shares or any of those other things, you know, we would be able to take those and sales would be able to participate if they wanted and, you know, very much now as a normal company. So I think it's a very positive thing. It also means that, you know, sales is now worth north of $10 billion and, you know, we're the largest shareholder. So it's in a very strong position for us and that's given them greater diversity of investments and, I think, given them greater opportunities to continue their very strong uh, growth performance, which has been um, pretty similar to ours. I mean, both companies have grown at about 13% compound for, you know, north of 50 years, and this, I don't think there's really very few companies on the stock exchange
0: that can claim that. I think the benefit of Solz as well, you talked about Brickworks' long dividend history. I mean, Solz also has a long dividend history, and it's... Uh, when you're in a business like building products, as we mentioned, you know, being at the pointy end of the property cycles, it's great to have that stabilizing income coming through when sometimes is most needed to just kind of give a, a bit of stability to um, an otherwise, you know, very volatile industry just by nature.
2: Yes, yeah, so look, that's right. And uh, if I look at it today, you know, 75% of our assets are investments, about half in sole pats and about a quarter in the property trust. So there's only a quarter of our investment is in actual building products. Basically everything we get is income from salt PATs or from our property trust, we pay out as a dividend. That's why I can be very confident that, you know, we'll be able to pay the dividend next year and the dividend will go up. And there's very few companies that can say that. And that's irrespective of whatever goes on because, you know, that that money is virtually guaranteed. It's not like we've got to have any earnings or, you know, trading conditions won't affect us. You know we'll be able to deliver that.
1: Lindsay Partridge, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. It's a great company and um, we follow it with great interest.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining us, Lindsay. It was good to hear the story uh, firsthand again. Companies interviewed for this podcast have contributed to the cost of production. This should not be construed as sponsorship or endorsement. The role of this podcast is to convey the company's story. All listeners must seek advice from an ASIC licensed finance professional before making any investment in these companies. Listeners are required to do their own research and due diligence in conjunction with the relevant advice from your ASIC licensed finance professional. Participation by companies in the podcast does not suggest or imply any sort of recommendation about the companies being interviewed. Nothing in the podcast is to be considered general or personal financial advice in any way, shape or form. All company interviews are for informational and educational purposes only.